This episode could be triggering for sensitive listeners and contains mature content. It may not be suitable to all listeners. Should you need any emotional assistance, please see the show notes for telephone numbers that you can call. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect the official policy or position of the podcast. Any content provided by contributors such as the host, guests, bloggers, sponsors or authors are of their opinion and are not intended to malign any religion, club, group, organization, company, individual or anyone or anything. This is Decoding Cults, and I'm your host, Palsy. You are listening to the interview with Luke Lombracht. Today's episode will be a bit different. I had the privilege to interview Luke Lombracht. Luke is an amazing activist for women, men, and children who have suffered from all types of abuse. He has qualifications in mental health, diet and nutrition, health and fitness, to name a few, and he is currently completing his Master's of Science in Neurodevelopment at WITS in the Department of Pediatrics and Pathology. He has held positions at Childline, the Teddy Bear Clinic, Le Fica La Posido, and Johannesburg Child Welfare. Besides all of his academic achievements, he is also a petrol head and likes to build bikes and cars. He also co-hosts an amazing podcast called Society's Superheroes, where they celebrate the men and women who have dedicated their lives to empowering communities and who work tirelessly to improve the lives of others. I will post a link to their show, their Facebook page, and to Luke's website in the show notes. Now let's get into the interview. Good morning, how are you? Very well, thank you. And yourself? Very good, thank you. I would like to thank you very much again for your precious time on coming on to my little podcast to give us a little bit of expertise. I'd just like to ask you if you can just tell us a little bit more about yourself and all of the wonderful work you do. I know that you have qualifications as long as my arm. So if you can just start us off there, please. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you very much for asking me. It's something I've sort of done over the years. And hopefully what you're calling a little podcast will grow dramatically. And I wish you well. So um, by yeah, sort of by convention and training, I'm a child protection and development specialist. So I've worked in the, the world of child protection for the past 30 years. And while I was at university, um, I, I did an honours degree in comparative religion and philosophy. And my particular interest was new religious movements and how those are different from cults. And then due to the fact that I was, you know, it was an interest of mine at university, we had some issues around students being targeted in the reses by some cults that were around in the Johannesburg area at the time. And I was then asked to assist the university to sort of 
well, sort of safeguard young people from the sort of the, the lure of the cult and the potential harm that that may cause. Okay, thank you very much. Um, sorry, you told me a little bit about how you got into the religious movements and cults and things, but what kind of work have you done around that? Like um, what kind of groups have you encountered? What kind of people have you been encountered in these groups? Have they been a little bit, um, have they been a little bit like aggressive towards you? Have they been open to speaking to you? Those kind of things. So the, the thing about me in the sort of when I was at school in the 80s and then at university in the 90s is I think I was as much a seeker as many people who joined cults. So I basically exposed myself to as much as I could. I, I mean, I've spent time with Scientologists, Hare Krishnas, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. I, look, I mean, Boston Church of Christ. And the um, Osho, the Rajneeshis. So I've spent an enormous amount of time sort of looking at what the functionality of religion is. So what function it serves in the lives of people. And it's very important to understand that in general, people set out seeking some kind of truth and seeking some kind of solace from the enormous complexity of the world that generally negatively affects their mental health, or they've had some big life events like moves or deaths, etc. And what happens within that context is they go seeking. So from my experience, it, it really, the, the vast majority of the people I met in those very diverse groupings, whether those were new religious movements or cults, they were generally people who were attempting to find meaning they were attempting to find some sense of peace some sense of calm in a world of increasing complexity and in general they were all extremely loving i mean it's almost i mean there is a phrase they call it love bombing so i mean you know you get sort of love bombed in in many ways and they were all very, very, very kind. Um, and because I was sort of a trained comparative religion and philosophy person, they quite enjoyed the intellectual banter with me. So, you know, I would go in and I would challenge them on everything they say and everything they're doing. And I had some very, very good sort of academic intellectual conversations where they would want to banter with me. Okay, So that was the first thing. To be honest, the only real sort of pushy, aggressive people I, I came across within my exposure to all of those different um, movements I've mentioned, I didn't mention all of the ones, you know, that I sort of spent time with, were the Scientologists. I found them very, very difficult. They were, they were pushy, arrogant, you know, they, they were really, really difficult people. You couldn't engage them in a conversation. You know, you couldn't debate anything with them. It was like, you know, this is what this is what it is. You are kind of clouded and you can't see the truth, etc. And you better sort yourself out. For a man who's so young, you know, you've got huge problems after they did my 500 question personality test and whatever. And I said to them, well, how much does my peace of mind cost? And they said, no, well, you can't put a price on your, on your well-being. I said, well, I can because I earn 420 an hour. And I want to know how many hours they have to work for my peace of mind. So they were actually the only ones who were aggressive at all. 
All the others were engaging, you know, like I said, almost overly so, you know, inviting me for coffee to coffee shops in Hillbrow where we would have these sort of big intellectual conversations. And so I, I never found them aggressive. The one that I did spend a lot of time with uh, in my own capacity for my own learning, I spent many, many years with them. They sort of had this veil of teaching you philosophy. And then what happened at a certain level, like cults do in a tier-based system, suddenly you sort of were going to some graduation ceremony and, you know, you were being sort of introduced to the Shankaracharya of the West and, you know, you had to like undergo some ceremony and whatever. And at this point, I said, I don't understand. What is this? You're giving me some secret mantra, which is a word I know from the Hare Krishnas. You got me. What is this about? And I left. Mm -hmm. I mean, I left it, you know, on the same day that they introduced me to this thing. And I never heard from them again. You know, they, mm. it's not like they pursued me or anything. So my personal experiences with them, bar that one of being sort of conned and the other one of, you know, them trying to extract large sums of money from me as a student because, you know, they felt that I was a vulnerable person. I found them to, and, and, and I understand the need that they meet in people because it was really... I mean, they were intellectually stimulating, they were caring, loving, they would go out their way to do things for you. You know, it was almost like, you know, you can understand how people get sucked in. It was almost like emulating a family. Okay, wow. So I just want to go a little bit more local. So I, I know that we have Scientology here and I know that we have Jehovah's Witnesses here and I, I know that we have like the bigger religious movements that Arguably, some say are cults and some say aren't, but I know that there are other groups around that are not as big or as well known, but they pop up in South Africa. And I know that I covered the one in my first episode, which was that Seven Angels Ministry, which happened in um, in the okay. East Cape. East yeah, Cape. yeah. But the thing is, like, until they actually commit like big crimes. It kind of flies under the radar. And I was just wondering, have you encountered any closer to home, more locally born movements like this? Yeah, so this, you know, I've had calls over the years from parents, um, you know, saying to me that, you know, they're terrified for their children's well-being because their children have disappeared into this sort of commune-based environment. And with that, they've taken themselves out of their family, their studies, their lives, their friends, you know, which is a common, a common feature. And also that they dedicate all their resources towards this group. So the resources, in other words, they take all the money they have or sell what they have, all the time they have to either serve and, you know, to serve the, the organization or the organization's mission uh, or to earn money for the organization. And their concern was that this is harmful because it has withdrawn them from their families, their loved ones, their friends, their social group, their studies, etc. So I had one that was Korean-based, and this one also very kind of, sort of like you say, skirts on the periphery because, you know, it doesn't have, you know, these huge uh, sort of monuments to themselves that you can see like... Uh, a whole compound like you would see in Waco, Texas, or in the mm. People's Temple with Jim Jones, you know, where there's, there's something that's very big. So they run in smaller cells. Uh, I, there is an Amanus-based one that I have been phoned about as well. 
where they've been young people because I've had some other issues in Hermanus recently, but there was one in Hermanus that I got phoned about. And then over the years, there's been sort of uh, groupings. For example, there was one smaller grouping that we dealt with in Bromfontein around 2000, where it was a much smaller group of people where they um, believed the end of days were coming and they were they all got together waiting for the end of days to come. And then splinter groups, for example, splinter groups off the Church of Christ, like the Boston Church of Christ, who were very, very active in Joburg in the university setting. So they, you know, I mean, the Church of Christ is a massive organization, but then you've got a Boston branch of it, so they're kind of under the radar because they're seen as Church of Christ, but they're sort of another subgroup of the Church of Christ. So there's been a range of those over the years from very, very local to things imported from Korea to just one person who decides let's live this kind of life who has this small group of followings like a Charles Manson kind of figure mm. where he's got very, very few followers, you know, so you've got like a dozen disciples and those 12 people run very much under the radar. So, you know, that's sort of been my exposure in the early years where I'm talking late 80s, early 90s, when there was all the satanic panic, there was a lot of stuff around the satanic cults. And those were anything from kind of individual self-style people who were, you know, performing rituals and putting up symbols in schools and in neighborhoods, et cetera, to small groupings of two, three, four, five people to bigger groupings. Um, and now, I mean, more recently, you'll see that the Church of Satan has actually come out defending itself in South Africa. And they've recently offered a reward to catch the people who are mutilating cats so that they are not associated with the mutilation of cats. So they become extremely organized and have sort of constituted themselves in various ways. And then... A little bit more about your what you do. I know that you are very much youth orientated and all of those kind of things. So when you do get a call from a parent who's worried about a movement where their child has gone to, and you do find that it's not such a great place for the child to be, what do you do when you get involved in these kind of things? And how do you actually help the parents get their children out from under these controlling people? Look, the most important thing is, is you have to realize what the dynamics of a cult is if you are going to deal with how to manage it. So, you know, the first thing you've you got to look at is, you know, the fact that there's this enormous loaded language that they use, they make up their own sort of language and words. So you have to understand that first. You have to understand what the meaning and the draw is. So if you're trying to assist somebody, you've got to be able to have the conversation with them. You need to understand that it is meeting a need, a need for them to belong, a need for identity, a need to have answers, simple answers to very complex questions. Um, the fact that they feel safe with lots of rules, that the world seems to be a threatening place that you've got to avoid that that's tied to transcendental references, things like the remnant where only the 144,000 will be taken one day. Um, and then also the lure of the leader and the fact that that whole lure of the leader becomes very much like a, look, first of all, I would say 99.9% .9 of the leaders are narcissists and they're hardcore narcissists and they start by being all 
you know, kind of your best friend and whatever. And then, you know, if they challenge like any narcissist, I mean, they go completely pear-shaped. You know, they also have antisocial traits, they have um, psychotic traits. So they have people who wield a large amount of power. And you could see them as wielding power similar to power of someone in a domestic violence uh, situation where, you know, you've got a family set up where the father is abusive. So what you've got a mix of is it's almost like a Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. What you've got a, a mix of is some very deep transcendental, in the case of religious cults, some very deep transcendental needs that people are meeting, the meaning of life, my place in that, where do I belong, how do I deal with the complexities of this world. Mixed with that, a very, very kind of controlling quite sort of megalomaniac power money hungry kind of leader who then steadily steadily grooms these young people well not only young people but mainly young people grooms people and then it ends up abusive and now it's hard to escape because once you're in this if you threaten the authority they start threatening you so you cannot compel somebody to leave a cult that's the first important thing because at the at the time of them joining, when it's all still happy days and love bombing and, you know, the leader will do everything for you and is answering all your very complex question in this very enlightened ways, that's serving a need. And that need mainly is sort of the reduction of anxiety, improvement of mental health, in the sense that the world is a place that has meaning, makes sense, understanding, etc. But then they sort of go, they go right off the edge where... Uh, can tell them, I mean, the leaders can tell them the sky's actually green due to some kind of epistemological argument. And you can show them the sky's blue, but they'll say, no, it's because you don't see green via your cones or whatever. They lose grip with reality. So the first thing is to be kind. That's really the first thing. It's not this case of sort of going and kidnapping people in the middle of the night and deprogramming them and all of that kind of thing, because the truth is the majority of those young people go back, you know, uh, because you haven't dealt with the meaning of the cult experience. You're trying to just deal with the content. So the big thing is that if you engage, like I did with them a lot, if you engage in debates with them, they tend to use the language you have to understand the language. They tend to have self-sealing arguments. You need to understand how to have debate. You need to not be defensive around the fact that it might challenge your belief system. And, you know, what we try and do is we, we look at the fact that there needs to be some kind of family or social intervention. So friends, family, we care about you. We don't disagree with your belief. We just disagree with the fact that you've isolated yourself from all of us. You know, we, why, why would, I mean, it's actually quite a funny thing. If you look at all of the definitions of what makes up a cult, I mean, CrossFit would fit all the definitions of a cult, with the exception of the fact that you can leave and come back. You can socialize with other people, you can come back. You can do things other than CrossFit, you can come back. You can voluntarily participate, you can come back. You know, so it's the idea that, okay, you know, if this is your belief structure, that's okay. But we don't want to lose you. You know, the idea that they make the outsiders, the enemies or the unenlightened or the unchosen or the unsaved or whatever. The fact that they make the outside world, that is what we challenge most. 
because we rely on the relational element of the fact that people have a relationship with us to say, I don't want to lose you. If this religion is important to you, okay. But that, you know, what is upsetting for us is the fact that it is taking you from us. And they need to feel that it is their decision. And you need to recognize that because of the sort of mechanisms that are used, you know, the isolation or the, I mean, sometimes they use drugs, sometimes they use sleep deprivation, sometimes they use sort of long meditation sessions, etc. And all of that is in an attempt to, as I said, decrease the complexity of the world and with that give simple answers and with that decrease anxiety and feelings of not being okay. So recognizing that any leaving of that system is going to increase all of those things. You know, they've developed an identity around that organization. They've developed a sense of belonging around the organization. They have found a sense of meaning in terms of the meaning of life or the satisfaction they have in life. And if you remove that from, because by the end of the isolation, it's all they have, you must understand that that is all going to increase. So it's a big loss for people because they've been cheated, they've been betrayed, they've been jilted, they've potentially had their money stolen from them, they've lost their friends, you know, they've potentially lost property and et cetera, et cetera. So it's very hard for them. So you have to work with the denials. So there's three basic forms of denial. Um, and you do this, you know, quite gently. And the first denial is denial of fact. This is not a cult. And then obviously, you know, that's just a matter for debate. What defines a cult? CrossFit can be a cult. I mean, multi-level marketing companies come across as cults. I mean, some business practices come across as cults. In fact, I think some psychology movements are cults. So, you know, there's a whole range of sort of definitions around cults. But then the big thing is the denial of impact. So how is this impacting on you? You know, the withdrawal from your family, the withdrawal from your friends, the withdrawal from work, life, etc. And what impact is it having? And then obviously then there's the denial of responsibility. You know, um, this is something around the fact that it's not me, it's the world, or it's not me, I'm called by God, or it's not me, this is my divine mission, or whatever the case is. So it takes away a sense of agency over the world where they feel that something they've been called to do. It's a, and a lot of the, you know, these groupings set up these divine missions, you know, like a Jim Jones would set up agricultural farming in South America so that we can feed all the poor of South America, which is a great cause. And I mean, you know, it's a nice thing to go and believe that you're contributing. So all of that, when you give up and get through all of those denials, you need to deal with the loss associated with it. And obviously the first, if we look at the basics of like Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the first part, as I've already mentioned, the first part of loss is denial. Then they get angry with you, then they bargain. If this, then that, if this, then that. Then they get really sad because it's a loss of meaning. And as we know from like Viktor Frankl, in the complexity of our world, people are trying to find meaning. And then finally, there's acceptance. It doesn't mean you approve of things, but you accept the person and maybe not the context. So it, it requires time, it requires patience, it requires kindness, it requires an understanding of meaning, an understanding of the functionality of it. Um, and it must be done with great love. Yeah, it's very important to be sensitive to both yourself and to that person in this situation. Thank you for that. And then I just want to also speak on that. So we know that in some cults, we have people that either 
their parents bring in very young or they are born into this movement and then the movement collapses or in some cases the government comes in because they protect them under the Child Protection Act and they take them away. And now this is basically all that these kids knew or young adults knew or teenagers knew. And now they need to kind of assimilate back into what we deem as normal society. So what resources are there for these kids to kind of forego everything they knew, regardless of whether it was good or bad, and actually try and assimilate into the world? Like, what happens with those kids? So, as I sort of alluded to earlier, the dynamics of children being brought into, born into, bred into cults, because, I mean, they often are bred into cults, you know, where the leader has sex with multiple, you know, women within the, the, the grouping and they're seen as the father or the daddy or highest brother or whatever the case is. The dynamic that you're talking about is very, very similar to child abuse. So all that, all that we are looking at is the fact that you have a transcendental reference superimposed on a child abuse case. So a transcendental reference is that reference beyond the world where you attempt to make meaning of the world like everybody outside is coming to get us um you know we because we are being persecuted we are the last remaining ones and it says so in the bible in the last days we'll be persecuted in modern times of course you know the the idea you know that the four horsemen of the apocalypse are on their way is sort of very prevalent because you know we've been through some very dark times politically disease-wise etc so there needs to be a recognition that it's a little bit more complex than sort of child abuse in its non-cult or non-religious context because it does involve that transcendental reference, ultimate meaning, the year after, etc. However, almost all people who abuse children isolate them. It's one of the key components of, of grooming. So when children are groomed for abuse, the first thing that they is they will they will choose a favorite out of a group. From there, they will isolate them, do things only with them, separately from parents very often, or one parent from another parent to separate them from their siblings. And then what they'll do is they will engage in boundary violations. So that's violations of all kinds of boundaries, boundaries of normality, boundaries of body, boundaries of sexuality, etc., And then what happens is they then almost test the child to see if the child's going to speak or tell or resist. And in order to do that, they have to overcome the resistance of the child. They have to overcome sort of the prohibitions of social convention, et cetera. And then the children are abused. So the system in which children are abused in a family or in a boarding school or in a sporting group, et cetera, is very similar to the cult dynamic. What has been an additional feature, as I said earlier, is dealing with the the sense of ultimate meaning. So, for example, I worked with a young man who was abused by a Catholic priest after he crossed the border as a refugee from Messina. And, I mean, he went properly mad because he had, um, and when I mean mad, I mean psychotic, because he had come over the border, huge amounts of trauma on the other side of the border. Obviously, the trauma that the culture causing is the fear of the outside world, you know, so that they need to be protected from it. And the outside world is just out to get you. It's persecutory, it's evil, etc. Anyway, so that was his experience as a refugee. He came over the border and was abused by a Catholic priest in a sort of refugee setting across the border. And it was so difficult for him to understand because how could he 
as this damage boy across the board. He was seen as the corrupter of the priest, thinking that he had been sent by the devil to corrupt a man of the cloth, because that's what he was told. So it's not the fault of the priest who's holy, but the fault of the devil who has been sent to tempt. And you have then been made an agent of the devil. And because you're an agent of the devil, you've corrupted this man of the cloth, etc., etc. So it creates an enormous power dynamic within the abuse context that you need to be very mindful of. So the resources available to children who are being kind of removed from families where there's various kinds of abuse, isolation, cultism, etc. You know, the first thing that you have to do is you, you have to get them to a place that is safe and a place that provides a program for their healing from trauma as the first issue. There's also issues around, obviously, attachment problems because, you know, the attachment is very conditional, it's transactional. You have to deal with that, so they, you have to be in a place with relationships. And then they need the therapeutic intervention to deal with all of this and to assist them to think. Because what the cults do is they foreclose thought. So in other words, thinking is not prized. You know, if you think you are, and if you think outside of the words they use and, you know, and you question anything they say, they become quite punitive. So they don't know how to think about the world. They don't know what script they have to enter the world. Because they've been isolated from the world on the idea that the world is evil, the world is a terrifying place. They have to be gradually introduced to the world that the world is not this demonic, evil, terrible place. So they need to go to schools. They need to be socialized into society. They need to be introduced to society. I mean, in some ways, almost similar to the young people we've worked with who grow up for the first two years of their life in prison with their mothers. You know, when by the time they leave at two, they've never seen a traffic light. They've never seen a highway. They've never seen a big road that you have to cross. They've never seen a mall. So what you have to do is you have to use them to that world because that world has been made to be terrifying. So there's a lot of work. First is safety. So first and foremost, they need to be safe. Look, and in instances where there's deprivation, like sleep deprivation, food deprivation, those kinds, you need to make sure they're properly fed. You need to make sure they've got places to sleep, that their routine is good. You need to then make sure that the environment they're in is safe. And then you have to introduce them to the world with a supportive person who is there for them, both in the life space. So in other words, like a child and youth care worker, foster parent, et cetera, and a person that they go to for therapeutic intervention, like a play therapist, therapist, et cetera, that can assist them with giving them a script for the world and an alternative version of reality from what was offered so that the world is not a place that is trying to persecute you. They've taken my parents away. This is something you must battle against and fight against. And again, the analogy we use for it is that it's like going into an archaeological dig where what you're doing is you've seen archaeological digs. They go in with feathers to uncover the bones rather than going in with jackhammers. So again, it's a gentle, kind process because remember, they still love their parents. You know, as abusive as what parents are, I mean, the irony, I think I've worked with one child in my life and I've worked with tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of abused children. I met one in my life who said, I never want to see my parents again. I hate them. I want nothing to do with them. All the others sort of clawed back in an attempt to find answers to their lives and a sense of belonging. So we mustn't become like the cult people and make the cult people all bad because they aren't all bad. 
they do the they give you answers to the world they give you a sense of belonging they give you a sense of meaning a sense of identity they give you a sense of comfort in the world they misuse all of that to be abusive of you of course you know but that's the abuse dynamic in general so and then obviously you have to be quite clear and i think very careful as to the angle you take on prescribing meaning to the transcendental. So in other words, you know, don't come in as a Christian saying we are to save you from Satan because, you know, it's not helpful for you to come in and say my religious belief is now perfect and right and yours was all wrong. You know, it's allowing them to find their place and opening up a set of alternatives that are able to meet the same needs without the abusive, isolating kind of punitive culture of the cult. So again, we just need to remember that whatever we do when we do approach these people is always then from a place of love and to ensure that we make them feel safe in the space that we are bringing them into. Safety is absolutely key. Look, your basic needs are more key. I mean, if these people have been sleep deprived and deprived of food and that you need to feed them and get them to sleep, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. the first thing. But safety is absolutely key because you must remember that when people are not safe, they go into fight, flight, freeze, flock, fawn, I mean, whatever word you want to use. But it basically forecloses thought. That's the important part. You know, when you feel like you are under threat, and obviously the cults create the, the idea of a threat from the outside, and nobody can be trusted outside. And if you don't have a sense of trust in the world, why should they trust any of us? Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to earn trust. It's not just going to be given to us. And within that context, they accommodate because they're feeling they have to accommodate the environment because if they don't accommodate the environment, they have to go out into the world. The world's a terribly dangerous place, so they accommodate it because better the devil you know. So we must be careful not to sort of enact or re-enact any of those dynamics where what we want to be is we want to basically say to them, first, we want you to be safe. Only when you are safe can you think. Only when you think can you develop your identity. Only when you develop in your identity can you find a place where you feel you truly belong. Only when you have that can you develop a sense of self-esteem and confidence, which is what they generally didn't have, which is what put them at risk in the first place, and then find your place in the world. You know, but it's a process. It's not an event. And then I just want to ask as well, so I know that we speak a lot about the kids, but obviously there are adults that join groups for whichever reason and then they one day wake up and realize that whatever they're participating in might be very damaging to them but in the same breath they've kind of lost everything so they've written off their parents they've ended up in a new town or a new country or wherever they may be and I just want to speak specifically to South Africa because I know like overseas mainly the U.S. and those kind of places where they've got lots and lots of cults and lots and lots of literature and lot and support groups and cult specific kind of interventions not interventions but like if you get out of a cult you can go to for example Scientology they've got the aftermath foundation so if people leave the cult they can go to to the aftermath foundation regardless of whether they were in Scientology or not and they will take them in they'll help them if they've only been in a little while they'll help them adjust back to society if they've been in their whole lives, they actually help them learn basic things about outside world things. And like, we don't really have anything cult specific, but what do we have? Where can people go 
once they get out of a cult and they're like, I don't have anyone to talk to, like who do they go to? Where do they turn to? Okay, so there's a few analogies to draw in terms of where they can seek help. First is, in my opinion, it's a form of domestic violence. It is spiritual abuse, it's financial abuse, it's emotional abuse, sometimes it's physical abuse, uh, sometimes it's sexual abuse as well. So the first thing is we need to recognize that it fits the context of domestic violence. So any services that are available to domestic violence victims, in my opinion, should be made available to people who are exiting cults, because I believe the dynamic is the same. So in other words, you know, programs will be used, women, men, boys, children, etc. The other analogy is trafficking, particularly if there is movement of people across, I'm talking about internal border trafficking, you know, so you move someone from here to rural Eastern Cape. I think, uh, you know, that we could make an argument that if they're taking them away for sexual exploitation or et cetera, that the services that are available to people who are trafficked should be made available to people who have been, you know, particularly people who have been born into the cults or drawn into the cults and now can't get out. And the other analogy, interestingly, is addiction. Because what happens is if you are addicted to something, you will give up everything for one thing. So you'll give up your family, you'll give up your home, you'll lose your cars, your job, whatever, for the substance. You'll give up everything for one thing. And that's what happens in the cult context. And the problem is when you leave, you have hurt people. You have hurt those around you because you've called them whatever, you know, the infidels or the antichrist or devil's spawn, whatever, whatever you've called them, and you have hurt them. So a lot of it is about the fact that, you know, if we are assisting people to exit, they first have to be brought to that safe space, and particularly, you know, if there is threats to them. So there you would want facilities that would cater to victims of domestic violence or trafficking where they are actually physically protected. Because, you know, if there's an actual threat to them, which there obviously is at times, then they need to be protected as they would be in the context of domestic violence or, you know, like witness protection kind of environment. So while you're trying to extract yourself. But then the role of the people working with them needs to be family reunification. So there needs to be work done. And I mean, our Children's Act talks to this extensively is that, you know, families are the center of the world. And what these cults do is they want to replace the family by being like a family. And that's why I believe the domestic violence issue fits with it. And I believe all of the provisions under domestic violence could be applied to people who get brought into cults and held in cults by all of these various sort of techniques of isolation, financial dependence, manipulation, threats, physical, emotional, potentially sexual abuse, etc. So the idea would be that once you exit, you have to be safe. So in like a domestic violence shelter, for example. And then what would happen is that the social workers who would be appointed there would need to get the families involved to say to the families, you know, there is a need in that person, who, which is what they would have to want, a need in that person for family reunification. So we can restore that person first to themselves, because obviously, as I said, there's huge levels of loss and denial and et cetera that come with it. And then once we've restored them to themselves, we need to then restore them to their family, through their family, restore them to their community, 
so that they can then participate most fully within the broader society. A similar process for me would hold with the addiction scenario. And again, it would be about the fact that, you know, we're saying there's something about this that they've given up everything for one thing. And the, that analogy is they've given up everything for the cult. So the question is, what have they gained from it? What, what are they trying to achieve? And then we have to work on meeting that need in a more pro-social, less damaging way, which is a therapeutic process, obviously. And then on the cases, so what if, for example, there's someone that leaves a cult and kind of buries it inside and only starts dealing with it like 10 or 20 years later? Like, is there a time limit on being able to call on, say not was cult where you were sexually and emotionally and physically abused? Is there a time limit to actually call on the Domestic Violence Act and actually invoke that? Or do they kind of need to do it earlier rather than later? So the basic rule is the earlier the better. But to understand that if you have been abused, so if you as a child have been sexually abused or physically abused, there is no time limit on your reporting cases. But that's a criminal case. Okay, so that evokes another system as well. And, you know, that system is one because there is no longer any prescription on sexual offences. If you were, I mean, we've got a case in court at the moment where these women are now in their 50s. They were abused when they were children. And, well, I think they're in their 60s, actually. They were abused when they were children. The accused are in their 80s. And the abuse happened almost 50 years ago. And the case is going to court. So you will find that what tends to happen is that, you know, kind of the suppression or the sublimation or the cognitive distortions, you know, the thought problems that come with being involved in abuse or cult activities or addictions or whatever, is what happens is that generally there comes a time in a person's development where they recognize the impact that that had on them. And it's at that point that they want the secret to be broken because the power behind all abuse is the secret whether it's cult abuse, et cetera. And that comes with things like shame, betrayal, stigmatization, dissociation, all those dynamics that come with the fact that how did I end up here? How was this possible? And then when they come to a place, for example, we've had people who will say, right, it's time for me to come out now because I'm in a relationship and I recognize that this is impact on my, on my relationship. Or I've had children of my own and I'm terrified for my own children. So it tends to come out in the phases of a person's life where the impact of what has happened to them becomes apparent to them. And then they seek help and agency over their lives and not wanting to repeat the pattern or, you know, saying that this abuse cycle ends with me, that sort of thing. So no, there's no time limit either for the criminal side if there was abuse. And there also is no limitation on when you can receive psychological and social care at all. No limit whatsoever. And then is there anything that you would like to add or say to people out there that might think that they have a family member that might be in a, a group that's not following the normal path? If there's any extra advice that you want to give anyone out there? Well, I think, you know, what people need to be looking out for are a few basics. So first is that not all new religious movements are cults. That's the first thing. So if people find joy and whatever in you, I mean, there were new religious, I mean, at, at one stage, Judaism was a new religious movement. At one stage, Christianity was a new, you know, Islam was a new religious movement. So there's new religious movements that, that happen over time. So 
you know, the need to find a transcendental reference in meaning is important. So people need to not be judgy at the outset. The big difference with the cults is people need to look out for high levels of control. They need to look for isolating, taking up all of people's time for a leader that is enormously charismatic, narcissistic, who pretends he has all the answers for things. And they encourage high levels of conformity. They want their group to be cohesive at the exclusion of everybody else. And in the religious cases, they have some kind of divine message that only they know the answer to. And it works largely like a pyramid scheme, where what happens is that you progress up the ranks and the higher you get up the ranks, the more the laws don't apply to you. And the people at the bottom, the laws apply to you completely. When you get to the top, you've got lots of money. The people at the bottom tend to have no money. So there's that whole kind of multi-level marketing kind of pyramid scheme system that people need to look out for as well. And then in addition to that, you need to also recognize that it meets a real need in people. So while we need to watch out for all of those things, we need to say, what need is this meeting? Because the behavior will cease if the need is met in another way. So they are trying to, for example, find answers to things. So the answers to things that they are trying to fund are generally to simplify the complexity of our world at the moment. And it's the same, oh, this is just a bit too much for me and, you know, I, I need to undo the complexity. What we need to do as a result is we need to engage them. We must not judge them. We need to treat them with, like I say, with a feather and uncover what need they are meeting. Because once we understand the need, we can offer alternatives. Once they understand that there are alternatives and it's not this one big answer to all of life's complex questions with all of its isolation and distortions and sleep deprivations and eating all your time, all your money, you know, and making you completely dependent, that needs to be sort of thought through. And then finally is that we can't reject people. So even if we have been rejected, it's not for us to reject them. You know, where they are different from, for example, addicts is addicts will steal from you, they'll lie to you, they'll et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, this group of people withdraw from you. And it's not about us. It's about the fact that they find the world too difficult, too painful, too complex to live in. And that's a hard place to be, you know. And that's why, you know, you will end up with like a Jim Jones or a Waco, Texas or a People's Temple or a uh, Heaven's Gate, where people will remove themselves from the world entirely because it's easier to be dead than to think of yourself living in this world because the world is too complex. That's a hard, 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 a hard place to live. It's difficult. You know, it's painful. It comes with all kinds of existential angst, etc. So we need to not judge them for that because, I mean, I think all of us have some understanding of the fact that we would like to sometimes just bail out of this. It just sometimes feels too hard. Yeah, you're 100% right there. Okay, I'm aware that your time is precious and I know that you have another appointment to get to. And, just... and, and also we don't want to keep people listening to us for endless hours because then they lose interest. Uh, I could talk to you for endless hours. <laughs> well, we can, have, we can have a follow-up one if you want to do something more specific. This was sort of like an overview of the parallels between cults and domestic violence and abuse and yeah. parallels to substance abuse and, 
you know, kind of the basic defining things. We want to do something more in depth about things specific, you know, 100%. So we can certainly continue the conversation. Fantastic. I'll definitely take you up on that. I just want to thank you so, so very much for speaking to me again. I really, really appreciate it. I'm going to try and get the show edited as quickly as I can and get it up tomorrow. So I'll send you a link as soon as I've done it. And I'll put it all over my social media. And thank you for picking up on this because it's something people don't want to touch because in our sort of constitutional liberalism of granting people undue sort of, well, not undue, um, granting people kind of complete freedom of religion, you know, we, we haven't recognized the potential harm of it. I mean, we've had other interesting things like the religious community coming out against the banning of corporal punishment and saying, you know, spare the rod and spoil the child means we can eat children. I, I don't read that text like that. We have had the religious community coming out saying we mustn't do sex education in our schools, you know, because you are promoting, you know, wayward sex and gender diversity and fluidity, and I don't want my children exposed to that. So, I mean, even the mainstream religious groupings have, have something to answer to in terms of this idea that your religious freedoms are such that you can impinge on the rights of others. And we have to fight back at some level, but it's how we fight back. And, you know, we, we mustn't become like the, the leaders who are saying, oh, yeah, we're right and we're the only ones who know and you know nothing and these people are doing to whatever. We need to say, well, what's the attraction? Yeah, 100%. And how can we assist in meeting that need in a more pro-social way? Yes. Okay, perfect. Thank you very, very much. I will. Which is a great pleasure. Thank you for taking this on and taking it up. It's uh, something I, I really enjoy thinking about. So I appreciate you engaging me. And thank you to the listeners who made it to this part of the podcast because we're sort of 45 minutes in. And, uh, for those of you who made it this far, thank you for sticking around so long. Thank you so much, Luke. I can't wait to speak. Have a great day. Yeah. You too. Okay, cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Next week, we will be looking into a cult that originated way back in the 1800s, and it will be covered over quite a few episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button and rate and review us. It will go a long way in improving the podcast and helping others find it. You can find us on Facebook, and you can email us at decodingcults at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. If there are any topics around the workings of cults which you would like further explanation on, or if there is a cult that you would like to hear about, email me or post it in the Facebook group. Remember to go and check out By Design Crafts SA and tell them I sent you for a 5% discount. The amazing logo art was created by the tattoo artist Jock Jacobs. Thank you so much for listening.